Welcome to Transcending Identity. I'm your host, Nicole Lee, and I am thrilled to be your guide on this incredible journey of self-discovery and transformation. This podcast is designed to help you connect deeper with yourself and transcend the identities, beliefs, and environments that may be holding you back from living your best life. Through insightful interviews, thought-provoking discussions, and practical advice, I speak with incredible people from around the world who share their stories of transformation, transcendence, and triumph. From entrepreneurs to spiritual teachers, athletes to activists, you'll learn how they overcame obstacles and reached new heights in their lives. I will also share my personal stories, insights, and tools along the way. By listening to this podcast, I hope you feel seen, supported, and inspired to live your best life. Thanks for spending time with me today. Your time to transcend starts now. Today's inspirational guest is Anton Lucky. I first discovered Anton on LinkedIn and I was deeply moved by his powerful story of transformation and redemption. This led me to read his national best-selling memoir, A Redemptive Path Forward, From Incarceration to a Life of Activism. As I turned the pages, I found myself more and more inspired. Born in the 70s, Anton grew up in the impoverished and crime-ridden neighborhood of East Dallas, Texas. At just nine months old, his father was sentenced to 50 years in prison. He was a kind-hearted and gifted child who found refuge in school and was praised for his academic excellence at home. Despite this, Anton couldn't escape the allure and pressures of the pervasive drug and gang culture that surrounded him. He'd eventually succumb to a life of crime and violence, feeling it was the only way to survive. This path led him and his cousins to establish the first blood gang in Dallas in the 90s, resulting in a seven-year prison sentence for Anton. Yet it was during this period of confinement that Anton underwent a profound transformation. He embarked on an introspective journey, reflecting on how he had strayed from a gifted student to a life of crime. He deeply questioned the contradiction between his actions and his true self, a good-hearted person yearning to make a positive impact in the world. Embracing his true self and innate leadership qualities, Anton denounced his gang affiliations and committed himself to helping others heal and reshape their lives, marking a pivotal shift in his life's trajectory. For more than two decades now, Anton has been an unstoppable force, working relentlessly to put an end to violence and build sustainable communities. As a practitioner of peace and nonviolence, he wears many hats an activist, an advocate, and a motivational speaker. His focus lies in mentoring men and boys, bridging the gap between communities and law enforcement, and devising strategies for criminal justice reform, violence reduction, and re-entry initiatives for formerly incarcerated individuals. Anton currently serves in several roles, including president of Urban Specialists, co-chair of the Heal America Movement, board director for Fraser Revitalization Inc. and Stand Together Foundation, and a member of the Circle 10 Council Advisory Board for Boy Scouts of America. I am so grateful Anton agreed to share his profound wisdom and life-changing story with you today. As you listen to this episode, I hope it sparks a flame within you, inspiring you to rise above any adversity and make a significant difference in the world. Oh, Anton, I am so excited and so happy that you are joining 
us on this podcast today. I am just so excited for people to hear your story and all of the wisdom that you have to share. And just to share with everyone, it'll be in the show notes, but you have to pick up Anton's book, A Redemptive Path Forward from Incarceration to a Life of Activism. I read this book in a matter of a few days. I didn't want to put it down. The way it's written, you feel like you're living the life with Anton, but just the messages, the wisdom that is in this book. I don't care what background you come from. This is a book for you to read. So with that, I would love for us to actually start when the thing in the book that was so powerful actually is where you started in saying you are a product of love. So I would love for you to talk a bit about that connection with your parents and where your journey started as a child that then started to kind of shift based on the environments in which you and your parents were living. Right, right. And first of all, Nicole, thank you for having me on this show. I mean, it was a no brainer when I when I read the title of the show, Transcending Identity. <laughs> I, I definitely say I definitely transcended identity. And so I'm honored to be on this show. I want to just start out with that. But when I when I make that statement that I was a product of love, by all accounts, when I was going back and kind of looking at my life, everyone that I encountered, whether it was uncle, aunt, friend, family friend, et cetera, et cetera, they always talked in high esteem of the relationship between my mother and my father. Like they said, like when they met, you know, they were just like stuck together. Like it was like they were the, they were the couple, right? So I know that my mother and my father had this love bond, right? They, they connected early 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And they connected. And I knew that, you know, going back, talking to people, I knew I could feel from people telling me how my my father was over my mother and how my mother was over my father. And so I knew that. But my father was ultimately sentenced when I was nine months old to 50 years in prison that he ultimately did 37 years out of my life. Right? And so growing up, growing up as a kid, right? As far as back, far back as I can remember, I could remember those times as a kid that I felt kind of out of place, like I didn't have place, I didn't have identity. Because what had happened when my father was sent to prison, it broke my mother heart so much because she had so much invested into the relationship that she had to she had to move on. She she closed that chapter of, of her life uh, because she had, now she was a teenage mother trying to raise a son by herself in the early 70s, which was very, very hard because she had to drop out of school and, and get a job, et cetera, et cetera. So she had no time for no relationship but to try to make ends meet, to raise this wide-eyed baby boy that she had, right? <laughs> Big head baby boy that she had. <laughs> so she, she moved on with her life. But what ended up happening was she moved on with her life but no one never stopped for a second to reaffirm with me what had happened as related to my father. Mm. You know, all I knew was that he he was in prison, but no one explained to me why, no one explained to me nothing. It was just like, it was just this cold, dark place that I was in. And I was a kid, and I remember as a kid, Nicole, just, just really wanting to know that, you know, wanting to know, like, who was my father? I remember going to, as early as I 
can remember going to parent conferences, right, where I felt, as a, I can remember the feeling, feeling very embarrassed and full of shame. And I, sometimes I felt dumb that I didn't, that my father wasn't present. But I had nobody that I could explain that to. I had no one that, that those feelings that I was feeling in my little frame that I can express that to or someone who was skillful enough to talk to me about what I was feeling. So I just bottled it in, right? But I remember feeling like something was wrong with me not having a father. And and, and more so, I felt more ashamed because I was too ashamed to even ask. I didn't want to ask nobody. like Because it, it just felt as a kid, I remember feeling like that's pretty dumb that you have to ask someone who your father is. And so I grew up with those kind of feelings. And so which made me put a lot of my talents into school because school became like my escape. My mother worked long hours. School was my escape. So and I moved through the ranks of school pretty good. I was a straight A student. I was a talented, gifted student. They wanted to move me up a couple of grades. I just that was my to deal with to compensate for my father not being there and nobody not speaking to me and talking to me and dealing with this. I put out my energy in school. And so school, I excelled, right? And my grandparents, I stayed in the book. They became my primary caretakers, right? They would okay. pray. They would tell me when I came home with those grades, man, they made me feel good. They blew my, they blew my head up. <laughs> they blew my head up. <laughs> I could just see a little Anton just cheesing, just, uh, that, just cheesing it up. It's very interesting, too, that you found that safe haven in school, which is sometimes a rarity as well. And I remember in the book, the conflict you even had with yourself, right? Because we know many times in those environments, being the smart kid is not cool. And unfortunately, know what the work you do is still an issue. And so just recognizing you had this outlet of being adored and praised from family, but also conflicted and and wanting to be in the books, but wanting to still be cool. How did you navigate that? Like, how were you able to balance that so effectively that that still became part of the core of who you were? That was definitely a balancing act for me. That was something that I mastered too, because as you mentioned, you know, in the home, being praised for good grades was, was a good thing because it was in the home and it was around people that love you. But I learned quick at an early age that bullies get, I mean, with smart kids get bullied, right? That in growing up in neighborhoods, growing up in communities like I grew up in, pretty under-resourced, poverty, et cetera, et cetera, being the smart kid is not optimal thing to be because most kids are not that. Most kids are dealing with a lot of these issues that they're dealing with and they'll compensate by taking it out on kids who are who, who are smart, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to it was definitely a duality for me because I would be I would be get praised at home and I would try to hide being smart around my friends, right? Because I mm-hmm. understood that in my community the name of the game wasn't being smart. It was about survival, like who's the toughest, who's the roughest, et cetera, et cetera. Because we didn't have positive male role models and programming that reached kids like me or kids that where I was from. I'm quite sure there were some, but mm-hmm. they didn't reach that far to us, right? And so we didn't have that. And so for me, I had to I had to balance this thing of being smart, but knowing when to turn it on, when to turn it out. And that became a full time, full time thing for me because 
every day, as I've mentioned before, going home after school depended on two things, how fast I could run or how hard I can fight, you know. And wow. it was just, I remember as a kid, just I couldn't understand why it was like that, like why kids who were like me, who parents were going through what we were going through. I mean, we weren't rich. We were living in the hood. Why it was just ingrained in us to hate each other, to fight each other, to have something against. I just knew at my core that it was something, as a kid, I knew it was something wrong with that. Like, I was a naturally kind of friendly, you know, love everybody, make sure everybody tight, everybody all right type of kid. But that wasn't the going norm. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't the thing. And, and I remember just saying to myself, like, how is something evil about this? Like, how is this? Why how I can meet a, a kid that stay a mile away from me and ingrained in his head, I'm his enemy, right? Yeah. And we have, we have, we supposed to fight and we supposed to talk bad about it. And we, all these things, I never could understand that, right? And so, yeah, going, so, so it became a balancing act for me trying to stay good and to the core of what my grandparents was nurturing. And when I walked outside to encounter what was happening Outside, I remember literally having to amputate my personality. I remember. Wow. I, I wow. can go back and say, man, I remember that moment that I said, I have to become this in order to survive. Like, I have to be this. And, and I think this is so unfair that a child, and it's like you said, it goes on today, it has to make that decision. But I remember saying what was happening, the stimuli in my environment was so such that I was, I had to amputate who I was, change who I was, and pretend to be that what was outside of my door just to survive, just to make it home from school each day. I remember that. I'm just taking all of that in because you were very young. I mean, we're talking, what, less than 12 years old when this was happening? Exactly. Less than 12. Yeah. And the thing that you shared too, and children have this, right? I know you work with children, this innate feeling that it's not right, but not being at the level of authority to change it. And so I know just reading your book, that was also some of the challenge of literally as a small child, you wanted to be the change, but not being in that level of authority, you had to succumb to even elements of right. your own family, right, right. To, to survive. I believe my fundamental belief is when we are born, we our, our minds are just as wide as the sky when we are born. But we are slowly, bit by bit, given these notions, these ideas, these beliefs, these labels, these categories that tell us who we are. And, and oftentimes those things are manufactured from the environment because of the environment that necessarily not who we are. But our minds begin to take that information in and just like I did, amputate my personality and becoming that, right? Just think of all the kids who who are good kids, who are naturally good kids, come from good families, nurturing families. They get 10,000 kisses and hugs and love. But every time they walk out their door, they encounter this, they encounter this harsh reality right that oftentimes mothers and parents and families they understand but they don't understand to the effect of how it affects the child yeah they, the they, extent they, of the degree they, of it right they don't mm-hmm. understand the degree so 
that was me walking outside my outside my door each day, you know, dealing with that. And, and to your point, right, we know even just from the development of a child, as you mentioned, right, that you start to learn what is safe and a threat. And it sounds like very early for you, though you had the safety in your home, you recognize it was not safe to be that all the time. So you literally had to be more than one person, even as a child, to survive and navigate in your environment. And what I even read is, Anton, the pressures of that led you into crime. The pressure was heavier for you to move in that direction because you didn't have the other outlets. Can you talk a bit about how that started to come to be, that you ended up in gang activity and and going down that route? I mean, you, you... basically started the Dallas Bloods, right? You were right. one of the founders. Right. As I was saying, people give us these notions as kids. They give us these notions and these categories and these labels and these ideals of how to be. And I think what ended up happening subconsciously, I think we began bit by bit, wall by wall, building these walls and, and end up becoming that. You know, we, we end up insulating that little boy or that little girl that's inside us that's good with these walls that society, these ideas that society society give us, right? And sometimes it, people may say, well, how can you how can you become that when you know right from wrong? And I always respond simply, like if you walk out your house, I'm just giving this an example, you walk out your house, right, in the hood, and then you look down the street and you see, 10 guys with red sweaters on stomping some guy with blue sweaters on. You know, just your deductive reasoning don't say, hey, go in the house and put on a red sweater, make sure I have on some red. Right. And so just by that, you you in. You know, just by that, you become in. And so for me, we would, every day, we would, every day I go to school, we would fight. We had these instances with, with, with other kids in the neighborhood, even if you didn't want to fight. You had to fight. You know how it is in the hood. You got it. You got to fight. Or you you have to. Yeah. So I encountered that a lot. I encountered that so much, so much that some stuff had translated. And these kids who we were fighting, they were already identified with gangs. They were already Crips. So they had gang affiliations. My neighborhood want that. You know, I, we want that. I want that. But because we were fighting them, we were fighting them every day, it just naturally evolved to when colors. I don't know if you remember the movie Colors. Yes, I do remember the movie Colors. And now you just now I have Ice T playing in the back of my head right now. <laughs> yeah, we're the same age. So yeah, when Colors came out, and at the time in Dallas, it was no such thing as Bloods. It was just all Crips, gang, gang wise. And when we seen Colors, I remember as a kid, when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, seeing Colors. And I was like, wow, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, so we already fighting these people. They wear blue rags. Their enemies wear red rags. And by this time, you know, I'm deviating. I done, my grades and slip started slipping. I'm, I'm fighting. I'm fighting to stay in school. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to try the street, to. The street maintain. is taking over. Taking over. This duality is just, I can't, I can't hide. Because I was good at first. Being able to manage it, right? Being able to turn it on, turn it off. But now it's getting to the point where I have to get involved, et cetera, et cetera. And so when Colors came out, man, we said, we're going to be bloods, me and my cousins. And we created the first blood gang. And not really, Nicole, understanding the implications of that. We were really being impressed 
by what we were seeing. You know, our young minds were taking on what we were seeing and we was emulating what we saw and not really understanding the implications and the ramifications of that choice that we made, mm-hmm. made that choice. And we became that. We became that which we saw. We did. And just listening to you too, just the heaviness of the external impressions. I mean, if you're literally seeing it on the street, then you're seeing it in movie where we know music, the media, at right. some point in time, that takes over. I mean, right. the, the battle you have because you have more right. evidence of that being the way to go. And the right. thing we also know, and you talked about, right, the flashiness of it as well. A lot right. of times in the hood, the person that had the money, the girls, the fame, all of those was tied to that type of person. So right. the struggle even with that, right. of staying on the, the positive route, but everybody's poor and struggling right. is also another element that makes that so difficult to move in that direction. I remember the drug dealers in my neighborhood because again, and I want to paint this picture, in those communities that, that that we came out of, the men who were in our community were the drug dealers. Those guys, the pimps, they were prominent in our neighborhoods. You know, you didn't have positive images of men. That was a positive image for us. Mm-hmm. So imagine as a kid, we getting out the swimming pool and we, and we coming over to the store and we hungry and the drug dealers call us over to their cars, right? They pull out wild the money. And, and they would tell us good stuff. They would say stuff like, hey, stay in school. You know, make sure you get good grades, right? But as kids, we looking at we looking at that bankroll. Right. We looking at how they dress and we looking at the cost. So even though they may mildly had the right intentions to tell us as kids, but we looking at the behavior. We looking at what they we looking at what's happening. And so that message that they were giving was being drowned out by their lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. By what we were seeing, the women, the clothes, the cars, et cetera, et cetera. So our little minds were saying, whoa, we want, be, we want this, right? And so as, as, as good as they tried to to give us the information, I think they, they behavior and their lifestyle, you know, appeal more to us. I mean, especially when you're in the hood, you're saying, you know, you, you're in poverty, but you're saying, you know, this, you're saying money, saying all that good stuff. And then I remember my, my, uh, my mentor used to say, man, a good heart yields to empty stomach. <laughs> so, so, you know, you can have a good heart, but it's going to yield to empty stomach. And so I, and our stomachs were rumbling. And it's beautiful that you can, I mean, laugh about it now. The reality of though, that was painful, right? Oh, it was. It was and the, the fact that, like you say, just even the confusion of that, right, of yes. hearing from the individuals that weren't living that life yet telling you to live it, but not having any other evidence that living that right life was going to lead to any of those things. And so you went down that route. You ended up going the other route and to the point that you were incarcerated as a young person and even as an adult. and. Right. My understanding is that at the point of incarceration, that was your liberation. Oh, yeah. That's where you actually broke free and really started to understand the impact, not only that you had, but that lifestyle had and things started to shift. So I would love for you to talk about what that turned out to be for you that led to where you are now. Right. So, so look, so 
So I, so I started the gang. We were doing the gang stuff, which eventually got involved with drugs and that whole lifestyle. You know, I started living a, a lifestyle prior to prison. But I remember, though, and I won't go into that because I'm, I'm definitely not into glamorizing that. And I don't want to even uh, portray that I'm gla- glamorizing because I'm not. But I remember my daughter was who you just met. Her mother was giving birth May 7th. Two weeks later, and I remember when she was giving birth, and that was kind of like the turning point for me because now I'm becoming a father, right? And I remember having all these feelings, right? Not wanting to be to my daughter what my father was to me. I remember having that thought, you know, as a teenager, I was saying, I remember how I, was, how I felt, you know, as a kid. And that's some feeling that I, would, I wouldn't want to wish on no kid, right? When you uh, trying to figure out who your father is and, and, and not getting adequate love and et cetera, nurturing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I remember having that, that, that like moment where I was saying, man, I'm about to be a father. And I didn't even know what that meant because I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't have a map. I didn't have an example. And I remember it being, Nicole, I'm being very honest with you. I was scared to death. And you were fact. young, right? I mean, you yeah. were a teenager. I was, I was 19 when it was happening. Okay, was that's a teenager. You weren't. <laughs> I didn't have no. I didn't have. I didn't have no. No reference point in terms right. of being a father because I didn't have a father. So I didn't have no reference point. And 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 I remember when my daughter was being born. I remember not coming to the hospital. Something that I regret to this day. I didn't come to the hospital when they called and said she was in labor because I didn't know what, I didn't have no one to say, hey, what do I do in this moment? What? And I remember just shutting down and, and going into a cocoon and just, I mean, just, I, I hid from that. I hid from it. I, I came two days after she was born. i never forget that. And I, ain't, I don't think I shared that with anybody, but I remember just not coming because I didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And then two weeks later, I was standing in the courtroom and the judge said, he said that I was a menace to society, that I belonged in prison, right? And I remember looking around in the courtroom because I literally thought he was talking to somebody else. Because in my mind, I was saying, but judge, you don't understand, like, I'm from East Dallas, like, it is tough in East Dallas, like, I'm not who they, what you reading on paper, like, I had to do this stuff to survive, like, I'm... I'm a good person. I'm this, that. You just dealing with somebody who was trying to survive in a, in a neighborhood. But I never internalized this stuff, you know, but I had to be this stuff for my existence. And those words never came out of my mouth. That was just a slow motion happening in my head as he was sentencing me, right? And I remember as they started leading me back and I looked over and I seen my mother, that look that she had on her face, I'd never forget because... You got to remember, like, I was the pride and joy. You know, I was a, I was a good kid. I was a kid that you would never think end up in prison. Because, again, even in my gangbang and, and drug selling days, I was still, to the core, a good person. You know, I wasn't the person that was doing all the stuff you see on TV. I was still a good, I was still trying to hold on to everything that my grandparents imparted into me. I was still holding on to that. You know, I was wearing this this mask. I was <laughs> this duality that I had. I was wearing it well, but when he sentenced me, I went back to my holdover, 
and I remember this question that I posed to myself, and it was, how did you go from a A on the road, talented and gifted student guy saying you're a menace to society? I wanted to know the answer to that. And I went back to my cell pondering that question more than anything. I wanted to know, like, how did that happen? How did my life go from being in the fast lane, the far left lane on the freeway to, to, to the far right lane by the exit. And that's kind of how I sum up my experience with prison. It was going from far left lane to that right lane because everything slowed down and stopped. And it gave me an opportunity to be very self-reflective and introspective about how did I get to this point? And I began to trace back every decision, every circumstance in my life to pinpoint where I got off track at, you know, how everything affected me. I went into prison saying, looking in that stainless steel mirrors, staring at myself saying, I wanted answers and I wanted to be accountable and I wanted to deal with the ugliness of what I was seeing and really get back to that look boy who had dreams, who had vision, who had, that, that, that wanted to, to be successful. I went back to that, to that, to my original self. And I began, you know, and that, and that took me having to strip down all of the things that I was talking about earlier, all the notions, the ideals, you know, the labels, the stuff that I took in from the community. I had to strip out of that stuff. I had to be real with myself. I had to be real with myself that, brother, you are not a gang member. I had to be real myself. You're a father. You have a child that you have to be accountable to. You have to accept, you know, you can't whine and cry and complain about all the stuff that you had that happened to you that you have to begin to build. And the only way you build is you have to be vulnerable and accept everything that you see in that mirror. And I started to do that. And I'm, when I tell you that was some tough stuff, tough work that I had to do. But I always looked at myself, even in prison, as the example, the embodiment of the Moses of who would lead this. Because when I got to prison, we had a lot of men who, in my opinion, wasn't ready to be vulnerable and have these conversations stripped down and, 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 and do that. And I was. And I said, I want to do that. And, and I began to do that. I denounced my gang in prison. I began to just unlayer everything that went into me because I wanted to get back to my myself, my original self, that good kid, you know, who who ran in the house with that report card, who loved everybody. I did, I went into I, it just went in me to hate people and, and not like people and all that good stuff. I had to transcend that identity. I really did. I, I mean I really that I, I had to transcend to get back to where I you know, that, that original self. And I, and I did that work. I mean, I did that work. I was leading, doing that work. And I began to see the effects that it started having on other men. I was 20 years old in prison and I had men who were 40 and 50 years old who were seeking me out for advice. Cause I started, I started educating myself and I started realizing who I was. It was just, 
it was just a whole transformation. It was that 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 that, that caterpillar going into that cocoon coming out of butterfly. That's exactly what it was. If I had to describe it. <laughs> and I so appreciate that. And I do remember that your love of learning, mm. like you having the opportunity to go back into that. And I believe that the story of Malcolm X actually helped you see yourself yes. because of that similar duality and coming yes. to that. And I, it, it, it sounded like a bit of a catalyst to ignite what was possible, right? Like you can have the energy to know something is possible and feel it, but yeah. sometimes we do need to see some representation. And what you shared is that representation you weren't finding. And when you even found it in that story, other yeah. things lit up and divine synchronicity started to happen. The other thing that was really powerful, just even talking to you now, Anton, is recognizing that that power and authority that you had in the gang life created also a bit of credibility that allowed you to shift right. into this butterfly and and change the dynamics in a prison system and be able to minister and connect with individuals that when I sat and thought of this of may not have been possible without the street cred that you came in. So it was almost like a dis divine gift. Yes to be given that, to be able to move and shift people in the way that you were. Right. Can you talk a bit about how you started to realize some of that? I mean, you talk about that in the book, but that was very profound to me of how that reputation that could have been seen as so negative, you shifting it allowed you to really make some things happen. And that's, that's a good, that's a good catch right there because, and that's an important catch too, because when, when I went into prison, as I said earlier, we started the first blood gang, and I was so naive to what that meant, you know. We were just being teenagers doing what we do. But I was so naive to that. So when I went into prison, my mentor in prison, uh, this first this guy that I met, he caught me walking out the chow hall. I was walking out the chow hall, and this older brother, he had been in prison like 15 years, uh, but he was a teacher, right? He was no, I didn't know that at the time, but I came to learned that he was a teacher. And so this brother met me when coming out the chat hall, and I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. And he, he, he pulled up on me and he said, he said, look, brother, he said, man, all these men and all these brothers in here, man, they fall out of place to come see you. I mean, they, 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 they'll come where I'm at. I mean, when they don't mm -hmm. smoke. He said, they fall out of place. He said, man, they do whatever you ask them to do. You know, they, they talk about you, you know, they praise you. They And for me, I hadn't even recognized none of that. I hadn't even recognized that, right? But I, I hadn't, rec I was just being me. But he made me cognizant of that, right? He made me cognizant of that because I, I, I didn't see that. He said, man, all these brothers fall out of place for you. They do whatever you ask them to do. And he said, look, brother, he said, if you have the power to lead these brothers to do wrong, within you is the same thing ability to lead them to do right. He said, you're a leader. Lead these brothers to do right. And I was taken aback by that, right? Because I hadn't noticed how people were very gregarious to me. I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that. I didn't see that. You didn't realize the influence right. that you had. Right. I didn't, I didn't realize the influence. I didn't realize people, as you said, I had the credibility but I didn't, I wasn't thinking like that because you remember when I, when, I, when I left the county 
jail, I was pondering how did I go from an honorable student to be labeled a gang member. So I, I had begun my unlever, unraveling right there. So so when I came into the prison, of course, when I went look back in hindsight, I had these brothers who would try, everybody wanted to be around me, but I didn't take that as the way the, the mentor saw it. He mm-hmm. said, it's an opportunity for you to shift these brothers, right? You, you have something, there's something about you that you have the ability to shift these brothers because they all are kind of looking at you, right? And so when he said that to me, it, it took me, it, I was sh- shook by it. But when I went back to my bunk, I started thinking about it. And then he, he popped up on me again and he gave me, he gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley. And he said, read this book. And I started reading that book. And as I read that book, I really read that book. And I started looking at Malcolm. And man, I said, wow, you know, going from Detroit Red to debating with some of the best debaters at Oxford University. I was impressed by that. And then and I was looking at how Malcolm spent 14 hours a day in prisons reading. Like he studied the dictionary from A to Z. He said the blueprint. He to go from the Detroit Red and everything he used to do in the streets, you know, blah blah blah, to being in prison and really, he said the blueprint. You know, he started getting all that, and I and I I had a Malcolm moment because I realized once I got to prison, I realized how much stuff I didn't know, how much stuff that they didn't teach me in school, right? That wasn't in the history books, et cetera, et cetera. So that gave me this like insatiable, insatiable appetite that I was like, I want to read everything under the sun. I mean, and I began to read. I, look, I would be at the. I would be. I didn't play no. You were shut. You were shutting it down. Okay. Yes. I didn't play no dominoes. I didn't. I didn't play cards. I didn't play knock. I didn't do none. Of, I didn't play none of that stuff. I spent days and days on hand at the table. I'm talking about literally. I'm not capping. I was spend. Days and days at hand at the table, just read to the point that brothers used to come in the come in the day room and they were they were playing this right. One person, two, three people grab <laughs> will hold you down, hold me down. <laughs> Somebody grab the books and take the books off the table, and they would drag me out to the rec yard saying, "Look, you're gonna bust your brain, bro. You got to give it a break." You know they would do that. That's how much I started reading, and and, and I was. Digesting that information, I became friends with the librarian to the point she would give me books and I was reading everything. You know, I had, I mean, I was reading philosophy, I read world history, everything, right? And I was just, I just had this, I was chasing Malcolm X. And I can say I read 16 hours a day. Malcolm read 14. I read 16. I was chasing. <laughs> so your competitive him. spirit, you had to, you had to outdo Malcolm. <laughs> I had to outdo Malcolm. He was, he was my he was the boss. So I started going 16 hours a day, nonstop reading. And I, and I was just getting that information. And uh, this other brother that I read too, uh, Nathan McCall, Make You Want to Holler, was was a book that it was like the Bible in prison because it was this brother from Portsmouth, Virginia, who had the same similar experience, you know, went from crime to, to prison, finding himself in prison. Then he started working for the Washington Post. So him and Malcolm was kind of my idea. They was my 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 belief that it, this stuff can happen, and, and I took that same road in prison, and it just opened up a whole other world for me. I mean, I began to bring brothers 
and I was shattering a lot of norms, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of norms that these brothers had accepted, a lot of identities that these brothers had accepted. I began to poke holes in them. You know, I, I began to poke holes in the idea of a gang member, an idea of a pimp, an idea of all the stuff that they were talking about. I began to poke holes in them and really bring brothers back to their true self and their core because I was using my life as an example. My life was the example. So I'm, everything was happening in real time. I'm using my life as an example to unshed, un, you know, and get back to our original identity, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I started doing. That became my life in prison. And I think, and I will say this, I think because I was so convicted in this belief that that ended up becoming my credibility. I think a lot of brothers, but I wasn't the baddest person in prison, but I was very sharp, I was very smart. And I think a lot of brothers, they feared me ridiculing them, if, if, you know, something like that, because I was just so quick wit and sharp. But I was always about love, unity, you know, accountability, you know, understanding who you really are versus these labels and these things that we are pretending to be. I was that was that was that was the core of who I was. The core of who I was was what this what this podcast is about transcending identity. That's who I was. I was saying, hey. You're not a gang member. You're not a this. You're not a that. You are. And, and, and I was creating that for brothers, man. And, and and I was just doing it in real time. And a thing I just I love listening to what you're saying, too, because as you became so sure in yourself and that just natural way of moving, people gravitate to that. Right. And so. At the core of your heart and everything we talked about, at the end of the day, people are looking for love, acceptance, connection. And so to to meet someone who had that credibility, but you also feel the warmth of their heart, which, you know, that's what they're looking for anyway. And then to be sharp witted, (laughs) right, to be highly intelligent. I mean, you talk about triple threat in a good way. I'm just imagining, right? Because it's like, we. How, how do you take that? But I'm just looking at all of those things really coming together to be this perfect meld of what many of our black and brown people need. It, it is an element of that toughness because that is what you're used to. The familiarity brings you in, but the love has you stay. And that's that was just so powerful with your story of when you embrace the the love part of you, but recognizing the toughness could work together. How has that worked for you? And, and maybe we even transition you coming out of prison, right? And all the amazing things you're doing, because what I sense is you found harmony in those right. things versus seeing them as duality of, of flipping right. them. You found right. a way to marry them together with the work you're doing. Right. See, and I, and I think... I think when I when I looked at everything, right, I was I was really challenging in real time those ideas that I that that was that was conflicting with what you just said. I was mm-hmm. really challenging those, and I was challenging. And it, I think I guess the boldness of it and the, and, the, and the courageousness part of it, because I would bring and before I trans, transition to, uh, transition, mm-hmm. down, I would bring because people wanted to be around me so much. Just because I, it, it was kind of proven that most of these men, they wanted love. They wanted escape. They, they knew emphatically and intuitively that these ideologies that they've embraced 
wasn't what it was. They knew that, but no one was brave enough to step outside of it because it's all they knew. Because to shed that means you naked, you burnt, yes. you know, you don't have nothing to hide from you. You, you is you, you is everything. Your vulnerability, your all that stuff is on on display. And, and sometimes that's hard for people. You know, it's hard to step out into that when you don't have nothing to replace it with. And so I began to challenge that, right? And and and, and I think brothers they start seeing it as strength versus weakness, right? And that was the first first beginning of really understanding that being vulnerable is not being weak, it's being strong. You know, that we have been tricked into believing that men ain't supposed to cry, men ain't supposed to have feelings, men ain't for this. And and, it, and we create this hard exterior that blocks love and everything else out. And, it, and we freeze on the inside. And so I started saying, no, nah, it's different. And so I was bringing these brothers together, right? And, 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 and see, the, see the strong rule of, rule of weak, but the wise rule of mom, right? Mm. I understood that, right? Strong rule of weak, but the wise rule of mom. So I was bringing these dudes together, saying, you know, what we... What we, what we had odds about. And I was talking to them about stuff that wasn't regular prison talk. You know, I started talking to them about their families. I started talking to them about their mothers. I started talking to them about their wives, their kids. You know, I was having these kind of, and those, com- those kind of conversations is, is, you can't dodge them. I mean, you can't, you can only fake for so long, but you're going you gonna to come to grips with the real. So I was having these conversations. I was creating scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. And I would, I was just cognitive enough to know that when some brother starts getting it, to know how to bring them on in, you know, cause, mm, to reel them in. Yeah, be like, uh, so, so, so lucky, uh, so you saying that, you know, they'll, they'll come ask me a question, right? <laughs> and so I didn't never, I didn't never treat they inquisitiveness as, you know, it was dumb or they shouldn't be asking that, uh, you know, I always, I always welcome them in. And I got good at that to where I would have brothers, we'd be sitting around the table talking about philosophy, you know, have a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of, bunch of men who had convicts or whatever. We'll be talking about philosophy and the theory of forms and all kinds of philosophical concepts, right? Because I knew innately and I knew within each one of these men was that little boy that liked me, that, 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 that was pure, that was this, that society dumped all these ideas on and made them amputate their personality. I knew that. And so I, I knew at the core of everybody is love. You know, they got love in their heart. You just got to dig through it and get it. And I, and I became a surgeon. Yeah, see, love is the answer. I want my love is the answer t-shirt. It is. Yeah. So I was, love is the answer. And so that's one thing that I was, Nicole, I was very conscious of. And, and that was showing love, you know, mm-hmm. overpowering love to anybody, regardless of who they was, what they denomination or what their race was, what their orientation was. I showed love. And I think people, people drew to me because of that, because I, I didn't have this, this judgmental, stereotypical, da da da. You know, I didn't have it. I was always winning people with love. And so that became like, how people knew me, you know? And so I hope I answered that to your question. That was beautiful because you gave evidence, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that talking about these things, but then seeing it and feeling it is how you start to reprogram or deconstruct 
right? Those systems. And so it sounds like too, that just even with the love creating a safe space. So we go back to safety and a threat. You recognize too, what I'm hearing is the more they actually feel safe with you, then they learn to be safe in themselves, which then allows them to then have the curiosity to have the conversations, the connection, all of those things. And so creating an element of safety, which when we started this conversation, that's what got you to where you were is you didn't feel safe. So I'm just thinking about all these other men. They went through that similar experience. Well, being the kind hearted or loving or smart child wasn't safe. Right. Right. And you basically broke down those constructs. Man, and you, I, it, it's beautiful how you caught that, how you <laughs> picked that up. You good. You good at what you do. Because most people wouldn't have caught that. But that, that's exactly what, that's exactly what happened. Creating that, uh, creating that safe space for them. I mean, that, cause I'm going to say this and we can move, but I'm going to say this. If you just only understood how many letters that I've written to wives, to children, to mothers, on behalf of men that reunited them back to their family. I can I could feel it as you said it. Hey, I would I would tell a brother, listen, because they didn't know how, right? I would mm-hmm. say, man, let me read let's take a wife. Let me, let me read her letters to you. I'm talking this word she have cut the communication, she's moved on, and he's still there, right? I'm saying, give me the letters. I read the letters. Then I say, write a letter back to her. As you would write it, right? And I and they would give me the letter, and I get it. See, and I'll do that just to see how they, what words they use, how they use the words, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would take that, right? And I would write a letter to his wife, and then give it to, in his words, and give it to him, and tell him to write it in his handwriting. And the next weekend, she'll be in visitation, or a child, or a kid. You know what I'm saying? Because and it, it is so many brothers, man, that 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 I did that for that that because I just understood, you know, I understood, you know, I understood how we get off, you know. And, and, yeah, and, and it's the the like, thing that comes to me too, Anton, is often we are not given the language, man, man. right? So. When you don't have the language or been taught how to express, right? How can you do that, right? Yeah. So I sense that you were a bit of this. I don't know. I have a vision of you of like an empathy translator or something. Like, like here's this. Let let's add a little bit of love and empathy and understanding in here, <laughs> because that's the stuff we know yeah. that that you're not given, right? Like when we look at so much of the discord in life and and you talk about it, right? That humanity is at the core. And if love is at the core, then we can Mm. learn to effectively communicate. But if that's also been taken from you, that you don't even have the language to express who you are, and then to share that with another person, then the system automatically wins because it creates a divide because you don't have the information in a way that you can do with that you can share it. That's exactly what I realized 
with a lot of the men that I was dealing with in prison. I realized exactly what she said. That, Because from my vantage point, I was hearing men who love their wives. Mm-hmm. I was hearing men who were loving their children, who, who, who figured, you know, but they didn't. They couldn't communicate that. They didn't know how to articulate that because of because they had these beliefs that they had to be this white, this rigid white, right? And so when I was seeing the communication, I'm saying, oh, this is a communication barrier, you know? This is a communication barrier. And I saw instances where where all they had to do was say this or, or whatever the case may be, but it was a block right there. And so I began to, like you said, I ain't never heard that book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I literally have, I, I see things in visions, but I saw you sitting there yeah. computing, right? Between yeah. all the things you knew about neuroscience and development and empathy and compassion. And then like basically printing out this thing and say, here, <laughs> this yeah. is what you're really trying to say. Yeah. But, but I saw like, it, I promise you, it was bringing them back together like this, right? They were coming back together like next weekend, visitation, family and habilitation. And I'm like, it's on you now. You got to, you know, it's on you. And so I just think, you know, that, that kind of work, especially for our neighborhoods, our kids, our communities, they call it social emotional learning now. But that kind of work for our kids who have A scores out off the chart is necessary. I mean, it's definitely, definitely necessary. It's a lot of barriers that go in the way that, that kind of block us, that we we have to address, right? We have to address in terms of uh, us finding out who we really are and being showing up our authentic selves, right? It's it's a lot of it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work that goes on when you do that kind of work, but it's necessary work. And that's the work that you're doing, yes, right? Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about that work that you're doing in this space and and what you've even discovered. I continue to support the community, but I know you work with the police. You you still work with gangs and things. So let's just talk a little bit about that. I do. I, I, I do a lot of work on various levels, but I do. I'm telling you what I love the most. I do love working with. I do work, love working with my teenagers. I do love working with my black men because we've been hit the most. Right. We've been hit the most. So I love that work. Like when I'm working with the, with the juvenile, with the kids maybe uh just as involved etc cetera, etc cetera. it's interesting right because i know I, I have a knack for that very skilled in really getting these kids to see because a lot of times when i'm when i'm dealing with those kids and i get to the other work but when i'm dealing with the kids right i was asked the question i gotta go to to really get us in a real a real space and that go-to is when i began to ask them about their fathers right how many fathers do household i mean seeing their father in the last months so forth and so on that always strike a nerve whether it's boy young men or young women it always strike a nerve right and i'm sure to get kids who will cry who will ball crazy they will cry because those those emotions be so sensitive right because they because they're those kids who were like me you know, who, who father was out of their life and it was a touchy issue for me. And so when somebody unlayered that and somebody started asking, digging right there, it's going to touch you because you can't hide that, right? And when I'm dealing with those kids, when I ask them that, they begin to 
express those kind of emotions, right? And once I get those emotions out of them, I connect it to their fathers not being their life, et cetera, et cetera, and how they can, you know, address it and create a space and et cetera, et cetera. And then vice versa, I do the same stuff with men. We're like black men, I do these black men healing groups where we have duck men we meet regularly and we create safe spaces for these men, right? And you'll be surprised at the number of men who are our age, you know, who are dealing with issues that they never dealt with. I mean, that that we create that space and we have grown men. I'm talking about it don't be a dry eye that cry like they three years old because they never dealt with the trauma that they've been, that's been operating in their life since childhood. I mean, and it's like a chain reaction, right? I would lead these groups and, and one guy can be sharing, man, it just become a chain reaction because everybody experiencing the same trauma. And they can no, feel it, yeah. There's no space because society has said, hey, you have to be this certain way. You can't have feelings. You can't cry, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to be hard. And, and men know that that's not true. You can't maintain that. You know, That's not healthy. And so we provide this space for men to talk about the stuff that they're dealing with, et cetera, et cetera, because we believe that when you start dealing unlayering those traumas, then when you get a person to their core, then they can show up in an authentic self. Then they can be a help to our community, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, do the work with, with police officers as well, because all this is around trauma and the way we fear and the way we see. But when we, in and, and, and this society, it's easier to judge, it's easier to condemn, it's easier to convict sitting behind your computer screen or looking on your phone versus really having conversations, awkward, hard conversations to get to solutions. And so we believe in, even as it relates to uh, law enforcement, our communities, that we have to bring those two entities together. And it gets awkward, it gets uncomfortable sometimes, but that's okay because that's where you that's where you get the education from. That's where you educate people from. That's where you understand that proximity, give you understanding, that's relationships build, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the key to the, a lot of the work that we do. Our work is around we say violence, disrupting violence and poverty, but it's really in really having relationships, bringing people closer to have these relationships in the age of technology. So that's and that, and that spans all over. I mean, I do, I do a lot of stuff. We'll be here to tonight <laughs> if I talk about everything that I do. I know you're a superhero. You're they're living as a superhuman. I, I thank you for just sharing some of those elements. One of the things too you mentioned around the connection with fathers, and you were able to reconnect with your father. And you mentioned wanting to stay hard, but as soon as you connected with him, you automatically felt those emotions. And so I'm sure you share that with the children of other men. Once again, you have the story, you lived it. Yes. That allows people to open up to live their story. Exactly. And I think, and I think, and you're absolutely correct. You did read the book. I do. I will say that you read. The book. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely read the book. Yeah. But that, that, that's true though. I did. I mean, I remember saying to myself that I was going to keep this demeanor, this hard demeanor with him because, you know, I had some trauma and some stuff I dealt with in ways I thought. And, and, I, and I had, I played out my, my first interaction with him, how it was going to go. I played this out in my mind, right? Because I was going to be tough. And, I was, and the moment I saw him, I just broke, you know. 
and we just held each other and cried. And that was, and that was therapeutic for me. You know, that mm-hmm. was very therapeutic for me. And, I, and it, it, it kind of reminded me of the work that I do with the kids because it's the same thing, right? You know, you know, they, they would, the kids would be like, hey, I hate him. I can't stand him. I hate him. And then they, they would have these very serious feelings toward they, they but, but I know deep up under that that's hurt. You know, they mm-hmm. hurt. You know, they hurt because you know, the absence, regardless of what the absence is, it communicates something to a child. And so, and, and it's and nine times out of ten, it's hurt. And so mm-hmm. we began to kind of, you know, heal that hurt that's that's right there. And that's what happened with me, with my father. You know, it, it was, you know, my father did 37 years. I was 30, 37 years out of my life and tend to see this guy who looks exactly like me, very light-skinned, but he looked just like me and, and looked younger than me because he's prison preserved. And, and, and we just melted. I mean, I melted, melted and I remember just sitting there crying, like just holding him, you know. And so that's why, I'm, that's why I'm so inspired by this work, you know, doing this work. That's what keeps me going, doing this work, because I love to see when relationships are formed, when people are healed, when, 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 when men, all, all the teenagers get it, they had that type of moment to transcend these identities that society <laughs> You know, when they, when they, because, 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 and I'm going to be quiet because, quite frankly, we do take on an identity that's, 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 that society gives us, right? That, that takes us away from who we are at the core. And we have to get back to our original identity. We have to get back to our original self. And we get back to our original self is, is eroding those walls and those, those things that we put up. And we put them up to protect us, but they end up keeping us away from the love and the nurturing that we need as human beings. Because as humans, we have to have love. We can't be hard, cold, uh, malice, jealous. We have to be nurtured and loved. You know, that's the interconnectedness is what makes us human beings, right? And so it's eroding that stuff so that we can connect with So that's why I love this work. And I can feel I can feel the love. And I just so appreciate you just really bringing it all together, right? Because and what you continue to reinforce is that communication, connection, and love, and breaking away from all of these labels and th- those types of things, even working with whether it's the police or activists or gang members, whatever the case is, and seeing them as human, I would assume actually allows you to have more access. And we talk about proximity. I mean, you've been in so many different spaces, right? The White House to, I think you went to Russia to all these spaces. And had you kept the mindset that the only way you were going to do this work was only working with a certain demographic or a certain political party or a certain religious affiliation, you would not be making the shifts and moves and impacts that you're making. And I would love for you to share about how important that is. I think this is, and thank you for that question. It's super important because my fundamental belief is God is love. I just fundamentally believe it. I mean, God is love. And so, and I understand when I'm looking at people, regardless of what label, regardless of what party, regardless of who they are, what their occupation is, at the core of each individual is love. They want to, they, it's love. It's, 
That's at the core of every individual. I don't care who they is. The most worst person at the core of them is love. And so if you look at people like that, I don't look at people in love. I look at people. I mean, I don't look at people in labels. I look at them in love. Like every, regardless of what they are, what they occupation is, profession, people are connected by love. And people want to be validated, want to feel, they want to belong in. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy and need. So when I understand that, right, I approach people like that. And I approach people like that. And people, I don't care what the hardest exterior, they're going to melt, you know. And if you know anything about those glaciers that's up in the Antarctica, when them things melt, there'd be some beautiful things that you know, froze up. And so I know that even when I approach officers and, and, and they, you know, when I'm dealing with police and I'm doing trainings, they would start out with the snares mm-hmm. in the igloo, in the glacier. But by the time I get through with them, they'll be hugging me, loving me, saying, how can we work together? And I think that's what has allowed me to go on this journey that I've been on. And I've been on one hell of a journey in some spaces with some people. And it's just, you know, and I know it's God. It's, it's, it's all of that, right? Because I truly, at the core of me, love people. I mean, I really love people. And I believe love is the answer to all of the problems in the world. And we just learn to love people and not judge and not, you know, all that other stuff. We can make way, you know, we can make way. And, some, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard because people have been in a situation where, they st- where, they, where love has been taken advantage of. And it, but, but love is patient. Love is kind. And so you have to be patient with people. Has God been patient with you? You know, I want to always like this. And so, but I acknowledge that, you know, at some point God was patient with me. So I have to extend that same patience to people that I come in contact with. And I know some people get it in levels. Just because they don't get it now don't mean they won't get it later. Our job is to lead people to the water, right? To the purity of the water. They'll drink or bathe when they get ready. You know, oftentimes we, we try to force them to drink and bathe when we want them to. Our job is simply just to lead them to the water. Just show them where it's at. And then when they're ready, they'll take a drink or they'll take a bath. That's our job. So beautiful of recognizing the role and not forcing change and recognizing. I mean, I think that anyone who does this type of work is sometimes we challenge it because you also have this deep desire because you know what's on the other side when they take the drink or bathe, right? And you just like, get out of the water. <laughs> so that so there's a part of you that has to remember, right? You went on your journey. You didn't bathe the first time and you didn't take a sip the first time, right? So part of it is remembering that element and and the other part too that you that you brought up is recognizing that all of us at some capacity has this element of trauma right and and understanding that that has such a significant impact yeah. on how people show up their comfort level with other people their openness their vulnerability because right. we all came in here with love but something shifted that and right. i love that you continue to bring that up as a reminder yeah. that when we remember that it also yeah. makes it easier for us to see the humanity in individual because we recognize that's not how they came in the world and i, and I just and i'm gonna tell you when when we get that the world is a better place 
you know, the world is a better place. When we have that, that kind of patience, that kind of understanding for other people. The world becomes a better place because it's, then it's not about it's not about ego. It's about the individual, you know. So the world becomes better when we like that. When, when you just gave that example of we, we get them to the water, we try to push them in. <laughs> we want them to drink, but we want them to drink. And so that's 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 the ego in us. And so and so if we can if we can always challenge the ego, one thing I do, I'm always challenging myself challenging the ego of me like i'm always challenging myself and it's a never-ending challenge you know so it ain't like you can challenge and then you're good you don't never stop it's always constantly challenging myself so that i don't become selfish so it don't become about me it's always about the work you know, and the mission and not knowing i'm not getting the glory i'm not seeking glory i'm really doing what i believe is my purpose and, and i live in my prayer that's why this don't, what I do, and I, it don't even feel like work because I just do it. It's, it's purpose for me. So I do it and I'm energized and I wake up. I'm always thinking. I'm always saying, how can I, how can I bring value to something or someone? That's how I think. So it's, it don't even feel like work. To someone else, they say to me, man, you all over the place. You're here, you're there, you're at. Do you ever sleep? But this, this don't feel like work. This is purpose you know everything i do is purpose i'm constantly chasing god's blessings i'm, I'm chasing the blessings and i don't <laughs> ever get tired of chasing the blessings <laughs> that's why i'm blessed i'm blessed because i'm always trying to be a blessing i'm always chasing the blessings and i'm always checking myself to make sure that i'm not driven by ego i'm not trying to self-aggrandize you know i'm always checking myself against that and and, and sometimes and when I do fall short, quick to repent and apologize and, and try to address that that behavior, that action. So I'm always doing that. It's just like and a self mechanism. And the and the element of your humanness, right? As someone who is so self aware and gone through your own healing journey, I know you recently started going to therapy, and so. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what like brought that on, how you feel that can help others, because we know also, I mean, black and brown communities, but just in general, there's still this. And I think you even mentioned this when you were talking about therapy was there's still a bit of a stigma. You know, you do crazy or something's really wrong with you. So as someone who's so hyper aware, who has done so much healing, had mentors and things of that nature, what is that doing for you and, and what are your thoughts with others using therapy, leveraging therapy or other modality support, right, to help them on their journeys? Man, I think for me, it has definitely helped me because in my case, for me personally, I am, for my, and for my family, I am Santa Claus. I am the Godfather. I am who everybody go to, right? Even in my work, in my work, having a company, Having one company with about 30 employees, another company with another 20, and other stuff that I have. I'm always at the head of the table making all the decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you're in that position, you oftentimes don't have other people who you can, who can, who can, who, who you can trust with, with, with your inner thoughts and secrets and all that good stuff, whatever you got going in your head. So, so you don't have that, right? So therapy for me has been that, right? It, it allows me 
again, a brave space. I won't say safe, a brave space mm. to be able to be brave and, and just deal with it and un- unravel what I'm doing. So it's it's been helping me. I mean, it's, I, was, I love I love my therapy. And I understand. So, so that's me personally. Mm-hmm. And I understand what you just said for our communities. We've been deprived of therapy because of the stigmas and the taboo that's associated with it. it it's kind of like the old saying, you want something, hide something from a black person, put it in the book, right? Mm-hmm. So I looked at the book and read and realized this is where all the knowledge was, right? Therapy is, to me, the same way. It, it's, you know, for us, we didn't, we, because we looked at it a certain way, or maybe because we couldn't afford it, right? Could be that too. We did we couldn't afford Probably it. Probably a combination of things, right? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. a combination of both. So we never ventured, we never ventured to it. You know, we've never, we never tried it out. And so I want to be, for me and my community, I want to be, and using my influence, I want to be just like I was in prison. I want to be the one who, who be so open and transparent about my life because my life is open and transparent. I want to be the person who makes therapy cool, make, make it okay. Make some, and I've been doing it, making some people say, well, let me, let me try that out. Uh, how does working for you? You know how people come to you. They be yeah, like, oh. not a, not a curious. Hmm. So, so so what they do when they <laughs> is she black? You know, does she look good? You know, they they, ask all, <laughs> they want they want to ask all the questions, right? So I'm using that. I'm using my therapy journey to get more people in our communities to to look at that in other ways of dealing because we as as a people. We've done. We've dealt with a lot. It's a lot of. We have a lot of trauma just by sure being born in certain communities. Generational trauma is real. Right, and so we have to begin now, especially with a lot of information. We have to begin to explore other ways of dealing with that stuff, and not just as we as it been in the past. We bottled it up and we kept our mouth closed, and I think that's probably contributed to. The highest rates of diabetes, stress, heart attacks, et cetera, et cetera, because of all the stuff that we put up here and in in here that we never get to deal with. I think trauma, I mean, you know, part of releasing that stress is being able to talk about it and unwind it and all that good stuff. And we and we need that. So I want to be on the front line of encouraging men, especially black men and black families. That it's okay. That it's okay. That don't mean you're crazy. That it's okay to go talk to someone that's right for you to help you deal with some of the stuff that you're dealing with. And so it's been a, it's been a blessing for me. I mean, it's been a blessing for my family as well. You know, I'm leading the way in my whole family. Getting, and that's it's interesting. We talk about that another. You time. another trail. You another trailblazer and <laughs> trailblazing the way in another way. And I thank you for sharing that. Like you say of. There is an assumption that because everybody's talking about mental health and, you know, you even have, you know, other people that are in your in your arena and celebrities and things of this nature. I think there's sometimes this assumption that people are still open and willing to do it. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. Uh, And so the big thing that we also see is there has to be a relatability or resonance. I and, and that's why I keep going back to with you is. People are connected. They're seeing themselves. So when they see themselves and they in you, then they're like, okay, maybe this is for me. Right. Right. And so I think that's a part that's sometimes lost 
you can get the message, but until you can see it with someone that feels like you came from you experiencing you, does that create a bit of curiosity that is possible and will work for you? Right. And I think with that, when the curiosity comes, we just have to be, we have to be sound enough to know how to bring people in, give people the tools to, uh, to explore their own. Cause I don't never want to portray like I'm perfect. Like I got all the answers. I think that even for the people that follow me and the people that I deal with, I'm quick to say that, right? I'm quick to say, a guy asked me, I was just in Las Vegas at a prison last week, right? It's maximum security prison for uh, men. And a guy had stood up and asked me, like, he said, he said, Mr. Lucky, the temptations are out there. So, he, so do you ever deal with, with temptation? I said, brother, I deal with temptations every day. <laughs> I said, bro, I deal with temptations every day. I'm, I said, please do not interpret this message to believe that once you walk out these doors, all the temptation gone once you make up your mind to be on this path. I said, as a matter of fact, they probably hide. Right. I did every day. I said, but the key to it is the choice that you make, you know, and we all have a choice to make. We all have a choice to make. And so, you know, you got to, whatever choice you make, you know, you got those two wolves that's, that's inside of you. And I said, you know, as the story goes, whichever wolf you feed the most, so if you feed the wolf of temptation, that's the wolf that's going to override. If you, you know, if you feed the wolf of discipline, he's going to override. And so, so yeah, those, those, uh, that's, that's true. I mean, that's, that's true. Yeah. I'm not sure. And that is something too, before we close, that is so important, right? Is that, and you talked about the ego and also people ensuring they don't create this perception of you that right. creates a savior, a God complex and forget the humanness of right. all of us, but particularly those in these leadership positions, because we see that, right? And then that's what makes it even difficult to right. show the vulnerability because this this element of you being higher than that or greater than that starts to consume people. So it's great that you're like reminding, you're literally holding people accountable to yeah. remembering that you are human regardless of the mission and the cause. Right. And let me say this, Nicole, like I'm a, I consider myself a broad spiritualist, right? Mm-hmm. I really do believe God is love, right? So that means I can go to a mosque, I can go to a church, I can go to a temple, and I can get a message from me. I can go through therapy, and I can get a message from me. So whatever your choice, that's your choice, and, and I don't have a problem with it. But just using the example of uh, church, right? I'm going to use church for an example. I tell people all the time that uh, if you begin to watch the pastor and you base your, your experience off the pastor, you missed the mess. You missed the mark. I said, no matter where you go, for me, I'm always looking for inspiration that's applicable to my life. No matter where I go, I'm always looking for a word, a thought, a sound, a rhythm that I can apply to my life. I caution people against the Messiah complex, right? Mm-hmm. Or thinking that they, Jesus Jr., somebody, you know caution people against that that you have to really find what works for you right and and not and, and not look at men 
uh, uh, human beings as being this 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 excellent perfect creature. If if you focus on that, you miss the message. You miss the mark. You have to work. You have to focus on what works for you, and it can't be in the form of a person because the person is just a conduit for the message, and the person don't have to be. Perfect. They just have to do the message that we all have our medicine that that's made up of our experiences and the way we articulate and the way we compute and the way we process. That becomes our medicine. But our medicine is not for us only. Our medicine for other people, and other people have to know how to take the medicine without taking the person. You know. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yes. Yes, yes. I do. Yes, I do. You have. Yes. I, if I say yes one more time, they're like, OK, Nicole. Yes. And it's so powerful because, I mean, there's so much wrapped into that, <laughs> that maybe that's another me- uh, episode. But that part to your point is you are a channel, a vessel vessel right and keeping that in mind as a person who is that but also the individual who is taking in or consuming the medicine and separating that from the individual that is super powerful is there so we're gonna close is there anything else based on we talked about you know knowing that people are are struggling, right? They are dealing with their identity. They're still dealing with the systems that are up against them and environments that they are having that duality. Is there anything that you like to share as we close to, to keep them moving forward in the way that you know that you've been driven to do and how you help others do that? Yes, I, w- I would just simply say this, right? That early on when I was saying that we all, all of us are, are guilty of living in a box, a perception box. And that box is made up of bits and pieces of information, ideas, ideology, rhetoric that creates our box. This our box, our world. We all guilty of that. We all, the labels, etc. But if I could tell anybody something positive, I would say that that box only exists in our minds. Mm-hmm. That we have the ability to uh, come out that box. We have the ability to come out that box. Those things that that shaped who you are, that went in, the good, the bad, the ugly, you have within you the power to come out of that box. You know, oftentimes we think we are trapped in a box, but we have the power to come out that box, right, and transcend identity. We have that ability to be, show up authentically who we are. Those traumas that we have, everyone has those troubles. But we have to be able to come out the box. We have to come out the box and be who we are. I, I would end with that. Thank you so much, Anton. I have so appreciated this conversation. Uh, so powerful. And we'll have in the show notes all the ways to connect with Anton, all the amazing organizations that he's part of. I will close with a reminder to pick up the book and it'll be in the show notes, A Redemptive Path. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode enriched your life. I am if so, so grateful please for you, leave brother. a review, subscribe, and, and share this episode with others. Connected. Let's continue to and grow and together, transcend to new I heights, and create a life that truly reflects who we are.
we you are. are transcending I'll see you soon on another episode of Transcending self. Identity. Yes, thank you.